put in prayer for us? From right there. Are you okay with that? Okay. Amen. All right, so if you are in the church signal chat, then you will know that uh, we are decided to take a one-week pause on our working through the 1689 Confession to commemorate what God has done in history in this week, uh, which is the Reformation 505 years ago in 1517. Uh, on October the 31st is when we typically note when the Reformation started, although, like most things in history, it's not quite so absolutely cut and dried uh, how this all started. Uh, so I want to, I guess, give a bit of a historical survey of things that were happening before the Reformation, tell you what it was like to be a Christian in Europe in the medieval ages, in the 13th and 14th century, uh, and then talk about what changed at the time of uh, the Reformation, and how many things that you take for granted today were very hard-fought things uh, in their own time. Uh, and so we've done some of this as we've gone along in Sunday school, so I'm going to try to repeat as little as possible, and if you feel like you missed stuff because you haven't been here, well, that's just your encouragement to be here more often. So, uh, and as always, uh, to cover this whole period of time in the Sunday school hour is going to mean we have to keep moving. So I'm going to keep moving, but don't be afraid to put up your hand, stop me, ask questions, ask for clarification, whatever. Uh, please do that as we go along. It's important that we uh, don't just put a check mark beside this stuff, but that we understand it. So we talked about the way uh, darkness kind of settled into Europe, uh, into Christianity, through uh, what we today call the Dark Ages or in the medieval period. Uh, and there's always glimpses of light. God has always been faithful to make sure that the gospel is always present in his church somewhere. But through history, sometimes that light shines very, very brightly, and at other times it seems to go quite dim. Uh, and in the time before the Reformation, things had gone quite dim. Um, there was never one point in time at which the popes just said, now we are the infallible rulers. This just kind of happened slowly over time. Each city had a bishop in charge of it. Uh, the two most important cities in the Roman Empire are Rome and Constantinople. And so those two bishops decide one of them must be the supreme head of the church. Uh, and of course, that doesn't work to have two final heads. Uh, and through a, a series of conflicts and doctrinal squabbles, uh, the East and the West separated from each other, which is today why we have the Eastern Orthodox Church uh, and the Western Roman Catholic Church. And there's differences between them. I've mentioned it before. Notice how Catholic priests are always clean-shaven, and Eastern Orthodox bishops always have a big gray beard, look like they play guitar in ZZ Top. Uh, the Eastern Church is very, very mystical, uh, and if that seems weird to you, because to us the Roman Catholic Church seems mystical, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church is more so yet. So this split happened in 1054, and the Bishop of Rome now suddenly has kind of unrivaled authority over the church, uh, and they start calling him Papa. Pope, Father, okay, the Vicar of Christ on earth. Um, and so that is why we have the Pope, the Father, the Holy Father uh, of the Church. And over time, things get more and more centralized in Rome, more and more money starts flowing into Rome, more and more power starts flowing into Rome, uh, until one day 
uh, the Pope dies and a Frenchman is elected as Pope and he says, well, why do we have the papacy in Rome? Let's move it to France. France is so Catholic and, and why don't we move it there? And so he moves the papacy to Avignon, France. And the, uh, most of the Italian bishops aren't very happy about that. So they get back together as this guy is leaving for France uh, at, at one point in time. This is the three popes controversy. And they re-elect another pope, an Italian, so that the papacy will be in Rome where it properly belongs. The French pope, no, I was duly elected. <laughs> I'm the pope, the Italian pope. No, I'm in Rome, I'm the pope. What do we do? Now even the Western church has two popes. Great idea. Let's cancel both of them, get together again after excommunicating both popes, and we'll elect a third pope, and this will settle it. Did the other two give up their crown? <laughs> no, they did not. Now we have three popes, <laughs> and they all excommunicated each other, and countries had to decide which pope they would align with. Because remember, there's no such thing as personal Christianity. You're a Christian because you're a Spaniard, you're a Christian because you're Portuguese. And if you are cut off from the Pope, your whole country is going to hell. There is no chance for you to go to heaven if you cannot receive the sacraments. So it's a big deal for your king to line himself up with the right Pope. Otherwise, you are damned to hell. So it's a big deal. This isn't just so easy as, uh, well, you know what, it doesn't really matter who the Pope is. It's a big deal in this conception, at this point in history. Uh, so some, yes. Which pope is Germany following? I believe they are following the French pope. Uh, although that changed back and forth too, because as they died, this only kind of got settled as they died, uh, and then one kind of carried on. We are in the 1300s. Yeah, uh, and the, the papacy lasted in France for 70 years. And if you're Roman Catholic, you'll call that the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. Okay? The church is in exile in France. Um, and of course, today it's back in Rome and it's not contested anymore. But this is the kind of thing that was happening. Uh, doctrinally, other things were happening too. So by the time uh, the pre-reformers and the reformers come along, what you are saved by is not so much by faith in Jesus Christ. What you are saved by is sacraments. Okay? And the Roman Catholic Church has seven of them. Okay? So when you are baptized, your parents bring you to church and you are baptized to erase original sin. Okay? So Catholics share the same view of original sin that us Protestants do, that babies are not born neutral. Babies are born sinful. They have a sinful nature at conception. So far, we're agreed. How does that sinful nature get overcome? Well, in Rome, it gets overcome by the waters of baptism. This baby has now been neutralized through the waters of baptism. Original sin is washed away, and so now this baby can cooperate with the church for his or her salvation. Uh, the Eucharist, I've mentioned this often, is very, very important in Roman Catholicism. The Eucharist is as important to them as the preaching of the Bible is to us as Protestants. Because this is the means by which God teaches you and strengthens you. And I've mentioned this many times too. That's why in a Roman Catholic church, the altar is in the middle, and the pulpit is off to the side for a 15-minute homily. But what really matters is that you take the elements... Because when the priest grabs the bread and the wine and he holds them up and he says, Hoc est corpus meum, which if you ever did a kid's magic show and they say hocus pocus, that's where that comes from. It's Latin, uh, hoc est corpus meum, this is my body. The priest holds up the elements and in that moment, 
It does not symbolically become the blood and body of Christ. It actually, it changes into the body and blood of Christ. Okay? It changes. So you are physically consuming Christ's body and blood to strengthen you and to teach you. Um, <clears throat> there's also the sacrament of confirmation. So once you're of age and you want to be a member of the church, you go up in front of the church for confirmation, uh, at which point you are saying, I, I, I want to cooperate with the church, I want to be a Christian, uh, and so forth. Um, then there is the, uh, the sacrament of marriage. Marriage is... Uh, to a large degree, holy in Roman Catholicism. We need certain people to get married at least and to have babies if we're going to populate the world. So marriage is a sacrament by which God strengthens you. And ordination is a sacrament by which God strengthens you. And notice here, you can't have both sacraments, right? You can have one, but not the other. Because if you're ordained in the Roman Catholic Church, you must remain celibate, okay? You can't have a married priest or a married nun, for example. Um... And, uh, and then there is penance. If you commit sin, you go to the priest and you confess it, and he might give you something to do so you can be absolved of your sin. Um, and, uh, and then lastly, uh, last rites. I think I've covered all seven. Is that seven? Baptism, Eucharist, confirmation, marriage, holy orders, last rites, and penance. Okay? So that's the seven sacraments. Um, and... You've probably heard of mortal sins, right? Mortal sins and venial sins. Who's heard of those things? Okay, so now sins are divvied up. There's small sins that you might do, like tell a little white lie or covet someone else's house or something. Venial sins. And those sins can just automatically be forgiven. God just kind of automatically forgives those. But then there's mortal sins. Sins which are so serious that you become unsaved. You lose your justification when you commit mortal sins. You're spiritually dead now again, uh, and this is what penance is for. This is what going to the priest is for. And this is, what, this is Roman Catholic doctrine to this day, uh, but at the time of Luther, you would get asked to do things. If you would uh, commit a, a particularly bad sin, you might have to go to Jerusalem and climb the steps in, Jerus- or in Rome. Uh, you might have to do a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Maybe you would have to give alms. Maybe you'd have to pray through the rosary so and so many times. Uh, Depending on the severity of the sin, the priest would give you so and so much to do so that you could be absolved of your sin. And so you can see how this is quickly turning from a grace system to a works system, right? Never overnight, never officially, just bit by bit through historical drift, through man-made tradition, just building up slowly but surely, Uh, until some of these things just become so common practice that people don't question them anymore. Okay? That is a quick snapshot of medieval theology, and if you're a Roman Catholic, this theology is this theology to this day. Um, I've mentioned this before too. If I was a Roman Catholic, I would be extremely unhappy with the current Pope, because here's the problem. The church can't err, the Pope can't err, and history can't err. So if you have a pope like the current one who seems to hate Catholic doctrine for some reason, um, you ever notice he says something really dumb and then all the cardinals rush to the mic to explain how what Pope Francis just said is fully compliant with Roman Catholic theology? Okay, He's a little bit like a, a socialist Donald Trump. He says something without thinking and then the smart people have to run to the microphone and clarify what Francis actually meant. Okay, Because Francis can't say anything wrong. And nothing in church history can be wrong. So we have to massage these things to, uh, to fit. Okay, 
Are we all in the medieval world now? We all understand how this works? <laughs> We're all there? A German miner, E-R, as in coal miner, not as in under 18 years old, a German miner by the name of Hans Luder uh, was building up his family's empire and becoming fairly wealthy in the mining business, and he sends his very, very bright son, Martin, off to university to become a lawyer. Now, the family is sufficiently wealthy. They don't have to stick with mining coal. Uh, he can have a lawyer as a son. And so Martin Luther goes off to university, and he is distinguishing himself as probably the most brilliant legal mind in the university at the time, and he's starting to get quite a, quite a bit of attention for his brilliance for his sharpness. And he is working in, in that field until one day he goes home and he's riding his horse in a storm and he gets knocked off his horse by lightning. And he becomes very afraid. And he fears for his life. Martin Luther feared for his life almost his whole life. He's a very emotional guy. Um, but he gets knocked off his horse and he, he prays to St. Anne, who is the mother of Mary. And he says, help me, St. Anne. If I live, I will become a monk. And Luther lived, so he goes home and he tells his dad, Dad, I'm pulling out of the law faculty, I'm becoming a monk. And his father is a bit disappointed because he's becoming such a brilliant legal mind. Uh, but he becomes a monk, and when he's a monk, he starts to struggle with holiness tremendously. Okay? You're in a monastery, how much trouble can you get in? Okay? Not a lot. But he would sit in the confessional for hours on end, weeping that he had just uh, been uh, coveting Brother Thomas's piece of chicken that looked better than his. Or he hadn't been quite totally truthful with so-and-so, and he would sit there for hours on end. And the father confessor didn't know what to do with this guy. Like, get over it. It's, just, it's not a big deal. Get on with life. But Luther's conscience could not be satisfied. He sat there for hours. Uh, and then finally, his father confessor gave him the worst bit of advice, although in the providence of God, it's great advice because it sent Luther on a different path, he said this, just love God and try your best. Okay, does that sound like that's a loosening of God's law? Try your best? It sounds like you're lowering the standard, right? Now we can all jump over that hurdle. Is it lowering the standard? Has anyone in this room or in human history ever done their best for three minutes on end? Never. Try your best is a death sentence. Okay? Some of these things, lying, cheating, uh, anger, you can actually externally curb. Trying your best is a death sentence. That is a millstone around your neck. If that's the test, try your best, there is no hope. And Luther absolutely despaired. Now, mercifully, the, the order of monastery that he enrolled in, he was an Augustinian monk, meaning the, this order followed the early church father, Augustine, who was big on grace, and so Luther started reading Augustine on grace a fair bit. And he read Augustine, and particularly then in his Bible, reading, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Romans 1. <clears throat> Romans 1, 16 through 17. This is the verse that caused the Reformation in the providence of God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther, as a student of languages, went back and he read this in Greek. And here's how people understood this at the time. The righteous shall live by faith. Faith equals righteousness. Faith equals how you're living. Faith equals good works. Okay? So the righteousness by which people were saved was their own cooperation with grace. That's how they were saved. You cooperate with the church. You cooperate with your works. Uh, through your cooperation you are saved. And Luther read this and said, no, no, it's, it's not that. The righteousness by which we're saved isn't the righteousness which I produce. It's the righteousness with which Christ covers me. And he was broken. And he said, it's like when I saw this, that the righteousness by which I'm saved is God's own righteousness by which he covers me. It's not my self-effort. He says that I was born again. And the windows of heaven opened up and I walked through into the kingdom of God. And off we go with the Reformation. He was a brilliant enough mind. He had a teaching position at the university, and so he started teaching this stuff. And he started sending out monks and priests who started talking about grace in a different way that caught the attention of the church leaders. Uh, And they paid him several visits and and wanted to see what he was up to. The Pope at one time kind of laughed it off, and he said, ah, he's just a drunken German. Let him sleep it off, and he'll think straight in the morning again. They didn't take him very seriously at the time. But finally it got to a point where he went up and he wanted to formally debate with the cardinal, Cardinal Johann Eck. He wanted to debate what, uh, he wanted to debate the whole sacramental system that the Roman Catholics had. And so he penned down 95 theses that he wanted to debate. Uh, And this wasn't an uncommon thing. People debated stuff all the time and they'd post it on the church door and, okay, if you want to debate this, then show up this night. So what Luther did was really out of the ordinary. There's probably a hundred papers on the church door when he did this. Uh, It wasn't that odd. What was odd was he did it on uh, All Hallows' Eve. Halloween. What's Halloween? Well, historically, this is what Halloween is. Has anyone noticed that the Catholics have a lot of days on their church calendar? Right? St. Amos and St. Anne, and and there's all these feast days to celebrate these saints who have done certain things, right? The the birthday of St. Dennis's cat, as Luther once argued, or, or joked, why do we have a, a feast day for everyone? Uh, and then, as if that wasn't enough, then they had a celebration day on November the 1st for all the saints who didn't have their own day. All Hallows Day, November 1st. And the night before, it was common for children in Europe to dress up as demons and goblins and stuff uh, to mock Satan ahead of this uh, celebration of these saints. So All Hallows Day, November 1st, you mock the devil the night before, All Hallows' Eve, Halloween, that's the origin of our custom. Uh, And so it is not a coincidence that Reformation Day is on Halloween. Luther put his theses up on the door because he knew everyone would be in church in the morning. Everyone was going to see his paper, okay? That's why October the 31st, it's not a, a coincidence. These 95 theses, if you'd read them now, you'd say they don't look very Protestant. They don't look very evangelical because Luther's still working through his own thought. It actually, to our minds, would still say, well, that still looks pretty Catholic. Uh, And it does. But, I mean, this didn't come as a mature movement. He started this and he had to work through the inconsistencies and and this was a process getting to where we are today, of course. Um, 
But uh, these 95 theses caught the attention of the people. Uh, eventually, Luther is called to uh, a council called the Diet of Worms. It looks like Diet of Worms in English. What, so you eat a diet of worms? It's like paleo diet or carnivore diet? No. A Diet was just a council, and Worms was the city in Germany to which he was called. And he gets there, and all the nobility, all the princes, kings, the church hierarchy is sitting around, upper story and lower story, and they're all waiting for this trial of Luther. His books are laid out on a table, and no debate is going to happen. Cardinal Eck just says, Martin Luther, are these your books? Yes, they are my books. Do you recognize that what you say in these books goes against the popes and the church councils? Hmm. The weight sinks in. Everyone's watching. Brother Martin, do you recant of these works? <laughs> hmm. What do I do? Everyone's watching. Am I actually going to push this all the way to defy every authority in my life other than the way I understand Scripture? And we often think of Luther as this bold, brave, brash man, and he certainly was, but he was a volatile man. He was very emotional. Uh, and so he doesn't just push ahead. He says, you know what? I need... 24 hours to think about it. And they grant him 24 hours. He goes to his room and he cries and he prays. And he is convinced, no, this is right. So he goes back the next day. Brother Martin, do you recant of these books? And then we have his famous speech that he gives to the cardinal. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by plain reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant of anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. God help me. Amen. On we go with the Reformation. The man just put a target on his head. He had some very kind friends who kidnapped him after this meeting. And he thought he was off to the death gallows. They kidnapped him and whisked him away. And they found out they were his friends after they took their masks off and, and brought him to safety. And he sat in a castle room uh, disguised as a knight called Junker Jorge. He was Knight George for many years. He grew a beard, translated the Bible. He wrote uh, books and tracts uh, and so forth and carried on with the work of Reformation. Uh, and again, the Reformation was now about two things. First of all, it's about how is man saved? This was where it started. Are we saved by faith alone or are we saved by faith plus works? Okay, so that's what started this. But very quickly in the debates, very quickly in the writing, it became clear actually this is about something else. What we're actually debating, the reason we disagree on how we're justified is because we actually disagree about authority. Okay, and the cardinal said, if, if scripture alone is your authority, Luther is correct. But Scripture is not the sole authority. <laughs> scripture is one leg on a three-legged stool of Scripture, tradition, and the popes. Okay? So if you would do this move and make Scripture your final authority, Luther's correct, but that's his problem. He makes Scripture the final authority. And he is willing, and, and that's why he asked for 24 hours. He knows, if I say I'm going against what the popes have taught, he's a heretic. Okay? He is a heretic. He is damned to hell if he says that. 
And that's the move he's willing to make. That's why it takes 24 hours. That's why this brave man sits in his jail cell and cries and prays for 24 hours. Because he knows the significance of saying, yes, Scripture alone. Scripture plus nothing else. And I'll stop there. That is a very fast overview of where we are. Are we all in the story? Do we all know roughly where we're at? See what's at stake? The gospel and authority. No small things. Okay? Now, uh, people, of course, if you hear this gospel, and I talked a couple weeks ago about the doctrine of purgatory, if you've got Johann Tetzel coming through your town telling you about how your great-grandmother is screaming in hell, well, not in hell, but in purgatory, and the flames are lapping at her, that you would just get her out. Please help her atone for some of her sins. Pay something to Tetzel. Make an indulgence. Get your grandma out of purgatory faster. Uh, in the region where Luther was, uh, uh, Philip, Frederick, the wise, had a reliquary where he had a piece of Joseph's pants and a lock of Jesus' hair and John the Baptist's skull, and there was two million years of savings of purgatory if you would look, look and touch all the things in his reliquary. You could save yourself a significant amount of time in purgatory before you're ready for heaven. Uh, and Tetzel was doing this through indulgences, uh, where you could not buy forgiveness. This is very technical. You cannot buy forgiveness. You never could. What you could get is the Pope applying merit from the treasury of merit in exchange for the good work of almsgiving. See the difference? You're not buying forgiveness. <laughs> Do you see if you're Tetzel that this is a very big difference? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you're Tetzel, this is a very important distinction. You're not buying forgiveness. Uh, all these surplus works of the saints is stored up in a treasury in heaven. And when Matthew uh, in the gospel says that the church has the keys to the kingdom, what that means is the Pope has the key to the treasury of merit. All these surplus good works that St. Anne and St. Dennis did are stored up for you, and the Pope can apply that surplus good works to you in exchange for an act of penance like almsgiving. Okay? So if you ask a Roman Catholic, so it's buying forgiveness, no it's not. It's accessing the treasury of merit in exchange for a good work, for cooperating with grace. Of course, we would see that very differently. But this is how you could get your grandma out of purgatory faster. How she would endure a few hundred less years of flames lapping at her and screaming in anguish. And if you're a peasant and you own nothing, and you're willing to mortgage your house to get grandma out faster, this is... This is life and death stuff. This isn't doctrinal debate points. Okay? This is deeply personal. This is deeply pastoral. And so there was much readiness among the people for a gospel of free grace. And it spread like wildfire, first through Germany uh, and then south into Switzerland, where kind of half a generation uh, later, people like Butzer and Kelvin picked this up uh, in France and in Switzerland and, and do further reformation there. It, Luther's books make it up to England, and there's one tavern in particular in Cambridge, England. Who's ever heard of the White Horse Inn or the White Horse Tavern? Okay, There's, there's a podcast I enjoy quite a bit called uh, the White Horse Inn. Uh, this was a tavern in Cambridge, England, where uh, Luther's books would arrive, and the leaders of the Church of England would get together, and they'd sit in the tavern, and they would discuss Luther's writings. And this was no small-scale meeting of people. Uh, 
If you've heard uh, Thomas Cranmer, who was the first Protestant Archbishop of the Church of England, he was there. William Tyndale was there. Uh, Matthew Bale was there. Some other uh, big names, Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley. These men who would become bishops in the Anglican Church were meeting and discussing Luther's works. And this is how the Reformation got into the English-speaking world. So if you're a Protestant and you speak English, to some degree, uh, you owe a great gratitude of thanks to an innkeeper in Cambridge, England. Uh, this is a historically significant place. And so the, the Reformation is going everywhere. And the Roman Catholic Church has a lot of work to do. There's lots of damage control. Okay? If you started this football game, you own the whole football game, uh, and now after one quarter, it's 21 nothing for the other team. You've got to do some work. Uh, and so they got together and formed the Council of Trent to push back against some of these uh, things that the Protestants were saying. And keep in mind, the Protestants were not trying to do something different than the Catholic Church. They were reformers. <laughs> very, very important. They were trying to fix the church they were in. Okay? They self-consciously said, we don't want to do anything new. <laughs> Nothing new. We hate novelty. Okay? And for those of us with low German names, this will hurt. They were very clear. We are not Anabaptists. Please, okay? We're not trying to start from scratch as though nothing has ever happened in church history. We're trying to reform the church. We're not trying to revolutionize the church. Okay? We're not burning everything to the ground. Okay? We're not starting society from scratch. We're fixing the man-made traditions that have come in through the years. Okay? This is very important, even for the way we approach social upheaval in our own time. Do we see the difference between Reformation and uh, Revolution? Do we see that this is a very important distinction? Okay? Revolutionaries love to burn things to the ground. Okay? The sexual revolution is a revolution. It hates everything in history. The Reformers did not hate history. They loved it. And they quoted the Church Fathers more frequently uh, than the Roman Catholics did to make their point. Calvin, in fact, before he became a Protestant, was a scholar of the early Church Fathers. So he he quotes them liberally uh, to make his point, that we're not trying anything new, we're trying to fix the church. Um, so this is a reformation, it's not a revolution. And no Christian today should want a revolution. Revolutions are always violent. Okay? They always end up with someone losing their head. Always. That's not what we want. We want reformation. Slow, steady, according to the word of God. Don't burn it down. Don't start over. There's wisdom in history. Um, Rome, however, gets hardened, uh, and they're not willing to make any concessions, so they call together a council that meets for about 18 years, the Council of Trent, to clarify Roman Catholic doctrine. And it's at this council that they actually formalize some of the things that were just common practice. Okay? You were free, as a Roman Catholic in the old world, you were free to believe that the elements didn't become body and blood, because there was no church document saying that this... This is official Roman Catholic dogma. It's just everyone believed it. Okay? At the Council of Trent, this is now official dogma. This is an article of salvation. If you don't believe this, you're going to hell. Okay? Uh, and it was at the Council of Trent, the final straw at the Council of Trent, when the Reformers got kicked out, was a statement on how we are saved, on justification, which is how this whole thing started. And in the Council of Trent, they authoritatively declared, as the church as the vicar of Christ on earth, if anyone says he is saved by faith alone without regard to his works, he is anathema. Anathema. That's the word Paul uses in Galatians 
to say, God damn you. I'm not swearing. That's literally what it means. God damn you. If you say you are saved by faith alone, you are going to hell and there is no chance for you whatsoever. You are kicked out of the church. You are cut off from the means of grace. There is no hope for you whatsoever. Get out. And so they're excommunicated. They're gone. They're out of the church. So there's no longer a church that they can reform. Now they are forced to build something. They're forced to start. And I'll maybe stop there again. Now do you see we've got two churches? The reformers didn't want this. Okay? This isn't what they chose, but this was chosen for them. Now they have to start a separate church. See the difference? Okay? This is a lot of history. Are we going too fast? Should I slow down? Bring it back? If you're a regular here, we've covered some of this in the past. So they get to work recreating a church from the ground up. And it looks one way in Germany, where the Lutherans are uh, clearly the majority group. It looks a little different in Switzerland, where there's Wingley and Calvin and Butzer and a few others uh, doing work in Switzerland and France. Uh, the Lutherans get to Scandinavia first, and so Scandinavia looks very, very Lutheran, and you see that to this day. You go to Lutheran areas like Wisconsin, where the Scandinavian immigrants, it's all Finlanders and Swedish people, what do you have? A little Lutheran church in every town, okay? Because the Lutherans got up to Scandinavia, okay? Uh, the in England, uh, the Church of England was largely reformed, although that changed hands a few times depending on who the king or the queen was, whether the Church of England is Roman Catholic or whether it's Protestant. But same thing, you go up into Manitoba's Interlake, Toulon, Selkirk, what's on every little town? A little church with a square tower in the corner because it's English, because it's Anglican, because that's who got there. Okay? You can see who settled an area by the way the churches look. Is there a central steeple or is there a square castle tower in the corner? Anglicans, okay? Uh, and it's more mainland Europeans if you see a steeple uh, up in the middle, okay? And some priests wear robes, some don't. Some continue on with a, a worship service that looks pretty Catholic but is not, like the Lutherans. Uh, many of us would probably be, find it weird, almost Catholic-looking if you go to a conservative Lutheran church, um, but the, the substance of their gospel is the same as ours. Anglicanism may look largely the same, uh, but in substance, we are together uh, in our understanding of the gospel, or at least historically we are. Since the Reformation, of course, liberalism has come and made significant inroads into all branches, whether Catholic, Anglican, Lutheran, uh, or other Protestant groups. Liberalism is probably a bigger dividing line now almost than uh, than the geographic origins of these churches. So today we live in a time where if you're a conservative Anglican and a conservative Lutheran, you probably have more in common with each other than two people in the Anglican church, one at a liberal church and one at a conservative church. So the, the, the battle lines look different than they used to, I think. I think today the dividing line is liberalism. It used to be uh, liturgy. And I'll stop again. Does that make sense? If you go drive around rural Manitoba... Why churches look different in different towns? Why Clandeboy looks different than Gimli, for instance? Okay, there's reasons for that. It's not a fluke. People brought their churches with them when they came and settled this area. Lots of it. 
People couldn't read, so you are at the mercy of what you're told. You're at the mercy, okay? And um, there's obviously differences. I don't want to slander. So to speak somewhat favorably about Roman Catholicism, we often talk as though, you know, they literally chained the Bible to the pulpits, and they did. They did. But do you know how expensive a Bible was back then? (laughs) Okay, that's why it was chained to the pulpit, okay? Because literature just wasn't I'm sure most priests wouldn't have said, I want to keep my people stupid, but this book is, you know, worth $100,000 in our money. Of course it stays chained. But people were illiterate, people were superstitious, um, and so a lot of these things made sense to them. Like purgatory made sense in their conception of the world, right? Um, So a lot of it is illiteracy, and a, a big emphasis, you know, why are evangelicals known for being people of the Bible? Well, this is, this is why. One of the, the cries of the Reformation was, uh, in Latin, is ad fontis, to the sources. Let's always go back to the sources. Why are we doing it this way? If the Bible says we should do it this way, let's keep doing it this way. Okay, we're not going to overturn tradition for the sake of overturning tradition. But if our tradition is contrary to this, guess what's got to go? The tradition has to go, right? Um, and so a lot of it was just simply, as people could read, as people had access to the Bible... Uh, they, they started to see Luther is correct. And as recently, again, uh, as who remembers Pope Benedict, Cardinal Ratzinger, the German, just before Francis? Okay? Uh, he was a very conservative Roman Catholic, and he granted too. If we go with the Bible alone, the, the Lutherans were right. Then salvation is by grace alone. There's no works. The sacraments are helpful. Of course, he disagreed that that's the sole authority. But as recently as 10, 15 years ago, the official spokesman of the Roman Catholic Church said, yeah, if we go with Scripture alone, the Protestants are correct. So it, it, it is really, if you boil this all the way down, it's a struggle for authority. Okay? Is this the sole authority? Or I should say sole final authority. There are other authorities. Um, but is this the, the final court of appeal? Right? And we talked about this when we were going through our confession, uh, and I'll see how good everyone's retention is. Does the Bible make the church, or does the church make the Bible? Remember when we were talking about the books of the canon, what's included in the Bible, what's not included in the Bible? Remember how this became a debate? This is another debate. See, your, your starting premise decides where you end up. The Roman Catholics say you can't know which books belong in the Bible without Mother Church. See, right there. You can't do the sola scriptura thing, guys. Who made your Bible for you? We did. Mother Church. And then, but here's, if the three authority thing is correct, it all boils down to one authority still. Okay? It's scripture defined by the church, tradition defined by the church, <laughs> and the Pope councils defined by the church. So what you have is sola ecclesia, or the church alone is the final authority. We have sola scriptura. The, the scripture alone are our final authority. So that's, that's really what, and that's why a conservative Catholic and a conservative Protestant can talk all day and they will not resolve their issues because your starting points are different. Now, liberals can agree on everything because they don't actually believe in anything. So, so a liberal Catholic and a liberal Anglican will find much to agree about. A conservative Catholic and a conservative evangelical will not understand because you're not, you're not working in the same orbit. Your, your starting assumptions are just different. And so that has to be the nature of where the discussion goes. Anything else? 
I'm going to mention a few things, uh, and again, to be fair, lots of people think, and there's no right or wrong answer here, put your hand up if you heard that the Reformation was largely about corruption. Okay, I, I was taught that, grade 8 social studies, Mr. Nickel. <laughs> okay. It's mostly about corruption. Was there corruption? Yeah. Here's a question. Do you know any evangelicals who are corrupt? I do. Okay. Is that going to be the final test? No. No. It's not going to be the final test. The doctrine is the final test. There was plenty of Roman Catholic critics inside the church, like Erasmus, who was Luther's friend, uh, that, that legitimately said about cleaning up the moral corruption in the church, and to a large degree they were successful. The Jesuit priests did a lot of this, and so a lot of the corruption was cleaned up. And Luther and Erasmus, they were kind of frenemies. Um, and Erasmus once said, here's the difference between me and Luther. I am attacking the Pope in his belly, meaning his lusts. Luther's attacking him in his doctrine. Okay? All Erasmus wants is a morally clean church, but the doctrine was fine. Luther isn't happy with a morally clean church if the doctrine isn't addressed. So these two reformations look very different. The Council of Trent excludes the Protestants from being part of the church, kicks them out. <clears throat> but um, if this was just about corruption, we probably could get back together. Uh, the problem is, because the church cannot make mistakes, the Council of Trent can never, ever be rescinded. It can't be. Okay? So we have a real problem. If we're ever going to be one church again, and I call me an optimist, maybe in 10,000 years it's possible, okay? Uh, this is a major obstacle. No pope can say we're just going to throw away the Council of Trent that condemned all the Protestants to hell. You can't do that. They can't. And if someone tried, a whole bunch of conservative Catholics would leave, okay? Because the, whoever would try that isn't respecting Catholic doctrine. So we have a big problem. And it was made bigger. Who's familiar with how the Roman Catholics venerate Mary? Okay. All these doctrines came about very, very recently. The Marian dogmas are new, way past the Reformation. They're new. Okay. Uh, in Vatican, uh, well, papal infallibility, so that the Pope himself cannot err. Anyone want to throw out a guess what year that was formally accepted as a doctrine of the church? 1870. Okay. In history, 200 years is absolutely nothing. Okay. I met my great-grandpa Unger, who was born shortly after that. I have met someone in my life that almost lived at the time where this novelty was introduced into the church. And papal infallibility has been used one time in church history, and that was to declare that Mary never died and she was assumed up to heaven. Any stabs at when that happened? Probably in the life of some of you. 1950. <laughs> Okay? In some ways, things have gotten more difficult okay? because uh, both sides have become more consistent. Okay? So some of these things are, are genuinely new and novel. Um, I would not be happy to say that something that is 200 years old is a tradition of the church. At 200 years old, it's, in my mind, very much a novelty. It, it's a new, shiny object. So we have work to do. If there is going to be one church again, I threw it out in the threads, so I have to ask this before we close it up here. When did the Reformation end? Not 
correct answer. Hopefully not yet. (laughs) Okay? Are we one pure church on earth? Are we one pure church on earth today? Sure doesn't look that way, does it? So is there work ahead of us? Seemingly lots. Okay? The Reformation is not over. The Reformation is ongoing. We always need to be conformed to the Word of God. Whether we're Anglican or Mennonite or non-denominational or Baptist or Methodist, you name it, there's lots of work to do. If we are going to have a pure church that honors the Lord Jesus on earth, there is lots of work. And it will all have to happen according to the standard of God's Word, or it will not happen. So the Reformation is not over. I'll stop there. That's a bit of the historical background. Uh, The message this morning is going to be from Ephesians, fleshing out how the gospel looks. So I'll leave it there. Any last questions? Discussion points? 1517. October 31st, 1517. So we're 505 years in. Yep. Anything else? Direct scripture? No. Um, Here's one thing that we do. We can also be corrected by Roman Catholics. Yes, I said that. Don't throw anything at me. Um, I think sometimes we have such an allergic reaction to what looks to us like Mary worship that we just treat her as just anyone. But she is honored in Scripture. She is, right? Blessed am I among women. Um, Right? And so uh, there is a blessing that clearly comes with being Mary. So I think we can revere her and revere her place in history without statues and, and shrines and stuff. But direct Scripture giving her this place that that she herself was the product of a virgin birth or that she never died or that she remained a virgin her whole life. I I couldn't find a scripture. Okay, then we can carry on discussion. Uh, It looks like we have the castle at Wittenberg in the back as well as some snacks uh, that Inga very, maybe some others too. Audrey and Inga graciously brought us with, so you can enjoy some meaningful snacks and coffee between Sunday school and church now, and let's close in prayer. Father God, I want to thank you for your hand in history. Lord, I want to thank you that even when things look very dim and very bleak, Lord, you are not far from us. Uh, You are setting the table to act again, to show us the light of your gospel again. Lord, we want to uh, not idolize the people that you have used in history, we also don't want to see a place in history as a golden age to which we want to get back. Lord, that's impossible. You have put us in our own time and in our own place, and it is all by your providential hand. And so I pray that uh, as we consider what it means to serve you in a day where it seems like the light of the gospel is growing dimmer, Lord, I pray that you would send us a new reformation. Lord, give us all here the burning of your gospel in our hearts to shape family life and to shape personal life and to shape church life and work life and everything by the light of your gospel. Lord, you've done it before. Do it again. And we ask that you would use these dear people and that you would use this church to shine that light in the darkness. Lord, trusting uh, that you are sovereign over history. You are not done with your creation yet. You are not done with us. And I pray that we can go in peace and in freedom and in hope.
that you would be glorified. We pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.